You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good evening, Rifters. This is Rifts and Rules, the 5e D&D podcast where we go through the many 5e books and talk about various rules that enhance your gameplay experience. I'm Nathan, the Dungeon Master of Riftwake. And I'm Remy, a player on Riftwake and a Dungeon Master myself. Today's topic is Paladins. Paladins are a iconic class that is the holy warrior their whole shtick is that they are in heavy armor typically they have a weapon a shield and magic all at their disposal and the fact that they do have the ability to use weapons and magic both is one of the strengths and weaknesses of the paladin class so That being said, there is a lot to potentially talk about with Paladins, unlike a lot of, well, that's not quite true. Let me rephrase that. Some classes, for the most part, have all of their class abilities the same, and that is the the class abilities kind of define the class, while the subclasses are more just little bonuses added on. Other classes, and where the paladin falls, is there are a few general paladin abilities, but the subclass matters much more in terms of what abilities you have access to as a paladin, as well as potentially shaping the lore based on the type of paladin that you are. So let's, as usual, go over the basics of the class first, and then we'll go into some of the what the subclasses are able to do first things first uh, much like a fighter they have a d10 hit die so they are quite tanky only beaten by the barbarian they have the ability to wear any type of armor shields included and use any type of weapon one thing that they're a little bit potentially weaker on is their saving throws actually which is with charisma and wisdom 
So the fighter is strength and constitution. So it could be argued that in physical combat, the wisdom and charisma don't come up as much. However, there is a trade-off that we're going to be getting to in a little bit that does very much help make up for that potential weakness. So all paladins gain the ability to sense evil. And that divine sense, as it's called, is a potentially interesting ability. However, most people don't quite read it right, which is that evil is that first in that first line and what most people kind of zero in on. And a lot of arguments start of, well, how do I define evil? Is what I define evil what the paladin defines as evil? Is what the DM defines as evil what the paladin's god d decides is evil? However, it actually resolves what that actually means in the third sentence. They just need to keep reading. All that it actually does is just let you know the location of any celestials, fiends, or undead within 60 feet. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't sense humanoids. That's just not what that power does. And that is a real common misconception that has the explanation right there in the text. But honestly, one flaw, I'll call it, about paladins in general a lot of their abilities are really, really wordy. Like they, they just take an entire paragraph to describe what many of the abilities actually do. So a lot of people just kind of gloss over what the actual abilities of the paladin are. So just a thing to be aware of if you're making a paladin yourself or just have them in your world, just be careful reading through the abilities about what they can actually do. So, actually, you know what? Let's change things up a little bit, just for funsies. Let's just talk about what the Paladin actually is before I actually start really diving fully into the abilities for once. So, Nathan, a Paladin is typically described as a holy warrior who is the follower of a god of some type or other, and is typically depicted as being a lawful good type character. How would you, though, define what is a paladin? So in my books, is um, a paladin is someone who has taken an oath. They may have an affinity to a god or otherwise, and it, it's not really necessary for them to have any sort of divine um, connection as long as their will to do what they have um, given their oath to is strong. So, like, for example, Goreth. He's definitely not the most religious, as we can see. But his oath is the oath of vengeance, and uh, we can clearly see that with Goreth. As for lawful good, well, uh, we don't... Well, in Riftwake, that's not really a thing. We don't really use alignments properly. And next thing would be, I feel like that really restricts the kind of characters you can get, which I, I can tell you, you can look at any campaign. It's very unlikely you'll find a paladin like Gaurav. Indeed. So just to dig into one of those points a little bit more, would you say that typically a paladin is in the books defined as lawful good? I'm not so sure about that, but there is that sort of uh, feel to it because they're supposed to be like 
I'm upstanding. I, I'm a holy warrior. I, I'm a good guy. Yes. Yeah. And a very important fact is it's not. It was back in the day in previous editions of D&D explicitly spelled out that you had to be lawful good to become a paladin. And a lot of people think that to be the case in 5th edition. However, it is explicitly not. The sheer existence of the Oath of Vengeance, the Oath Breaker, there are specific options that show that's not what a paladin has to be. And even in that normal interpretation of them being a more religious person. Well, there's evil gods out there. Why can't they have paladins? So the normal perception of them only being lawful good is seriously putting them in a box that I feel they just shouldn't be. They can be just as morally flexible as anyone. Because if a person is a paladin... They're still a person first and foremost, and a person can be any alignment because that's just how life works. So I just wanted to get that out of the way before we start talking about it, because a lot of the paladin's abilities do talk about evil, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the main focus of the paladin. And I, yeah, like I said, I just wanted to make sure to get that out of the way first. So one thing, though, is that so diving back into abilities, paladins do have access to some magic, as I said. However, where they differ from the cleric is that a paladin has more abilities with weapons, but less abilities with magic. So they max out at fifth level spells. They're what's referred to as a half caster. So they have much, much more balance in terms of what they're able to do. And the reason I mentioned earlier as that as a potential flaw is because a paladin is the class that requires the most stats. And what I mean by that, a warlock can technically survive with just a good charisma score. A fighter can do okay with just a good strength and constitution. A paladin I want to say is the only class that really needs to have three good stats. They need to have a good strength for their weapons, a good constitution for their health, and a good charisma score for their magic use. So the fact that they need to have three at least decent scores is a potentially limiting factor in terms of making a character as a paladin. So if you're using the point by system, to build a character, it's a lot harder to make a paladin that actually has, you know, a plus three in stats, for example, because it's much, much harder to just spread out the points enough without really taking a hit in the others. That being said, there is some trade-off to that. A paladin is an incredibly versatile character because of the fact that they are good in so many things. And you get access to that right away. So as soon as you make a first level paladin, you get the ability Lay on Hands, which is a non-spell slot healing ability. So it is a class feature, not a spell. And what that does is that you have a pool of healing power that resets with a long rest every day 
And that pool is your paladin level times five hit points. So even at level one, you have that five hit point pool. And while that's not a large number, the fact that you can spend that healing energy as an action, but with as much or as little as you want. So a paladin has the power to just, as an action, touch a creature and heal one hit point if they choose to. And the reason I mention that specifically is because it only takes one hit point to wake up a character who's unconscious. So the fact that as an action, without using a spell slot, a paladin can potentially wake up allies five times at level one. Even if it's not a powerful heal yet, that is a very strong amount of versatility for a first level character. And as they level up and even get stronger and stronger, once you get to, say, 10th level, that that is a pool of 50 hit points. And that is a significant number at that point. And again, that is without using any spell slots. So those can be exclusively reserved for damage or whatever other abilities you decide on. And another very useful aspect of Leia Hyans that is honestly, I would say, underutilized, there is a second aspect to it that you can spend five hit points from that pool to automatically cure a disease or one poison affecting a creature. And if you want to, you can expend more if they have like multiple diseases, multiple poisons. So the fact that if you're fighting something like spiders or assassins or one of the many, many creatures that do have poisonous abilities, the ability to cure a poison affecting a creature is a very underappreciated aspect of Lay on Hands, besides just the sheer quantity of healing that is potentially available. Moving on then, uh, they get a fighting style much like the fighter does they have access to spellcasting using their charisma as their spellcasting stat uh, one thing that is also worth mentioning so much like a cleric every single day that a paladin wakes up they're able to change their spell list so instead of being locked on to the spells that they pick Every single day when they finish a long rest, if they decide, I don't use this spell, or this spell is not suited to what I expect to do today, the fact that they have access to the entire spell list to pick a different set of options is a very, very good, versatile option to them. On the other hand, Paladins have a much more limited spell list than, say, a cleric. So the fact that a cleric has access to all of the healing spells, that's kind of their shtick. A paladin, on the other, on the other hand, has access to some healing abilities, but a paladin as a class just is more damage-focused than a cleric. And in their abilities, in their spell list, every part of the character reflects that fact. So, also at second level, Divine Smite. This ability is one of the bread and butter of what makes the Paladins so damn dangerous to fight against and so powerful a character in melee. So every time when they 
hit with a melee attack, they can choose to expend a spell slot to do a good chunk of radiant damage to the target. Even a first level spell slot will do 2d8 bonus radiant damage to the enemy. And if you are a higher level and can spend a more expensive spell slot, you can spend all the way up to a fourth or sorry, up to a third level spell slot to do up to 5d8 damage. So it's 2d8 for level one and then 1d8 per level higher up to third level doing 5d8. But in addition to that, if a paladin targets an undead or a demon, then it does an extra d8 up to 68. And in theory, that sounds like a relatively simple abilities. You hit, you do a spell slot, you do more damage. However, there is one aspect of that that is severely underappreciated, which is it is when you hit the creature that you make a decision, not when you attack the creature. So many abilities have to be before you make the attack, you decide whether you expend the resource or not. Divine Smite is one of the few abilities that you can decide after the fact. So you can decide, I have hit the thing. I know it's injured, but I don't think my normal damage is enough to do it. I cast a third level Divine Smite to do... Oops, I misspoke. It should be up to fourth level to do 5d8. Yeah, two, three, four, five, fourth level. I misspoke earlier. My apologies. I didn't math good. So spend a fourth level spell slot to do 5d8 extra damage. And that's just part of it. There is another aspect that is also supremely important. A critical hit doubles all dice used in the relevant attack. So because of the fact that a paladin gets to decide to use Divine Smite after the roll, any time a paladin rolls a critical hit, they decide to use Divine Smite after seeing that, and then double the Divine Smite dice that they use. So if they just do, you know, a normal longsword attack, let's say 1d8 plus 2, if they don't have the best strength, then they can say... I've been waiting for this. Finally, I got the critical hit. So you spend, you know, high, uh, you know, fourth level spell slot to do that extra 5d8 radiant damage. Then because it's a crit, that would double to 10d8 extra damage. Plus the 1d8 for the regular weapon, uh, longsword attack would become uh, 2d8. So it would be 12d8 plus 2. And that ability, particularly with a critical hit is why Divine Smite is such a powerful ability. The ability to decide the extra damage after the hit. So you can be very conservative with your spell use and just save your spell slots, hoping to get that critical hit. Because, boy, is that a lot of damage when it does land. Anyway, moving on from that one. All right, all paladins become immune to disease at level three. Very useful potential ability. Now, at third level is where they swear their oath. And the oath that defines each subclass of paladins is drastically more important, I would say, than for almost any other class because these subclasses give far more abilities to the paladin. So, as usual, we'll go over that in a bit. 
Also, like the cleric, they have access to channel divinity. And so each subclass gives access to different options of an ability that can be cast once per short rest. Unlike the cleric, they do not gain more uh, times to use it between rests, but they do still have one channel divinity per, sh per short rest, which is usually a good ability that does not use a spell slot. Uh, they get ability score improvements. Okay, so at fifth level, we get to one of the things that differentiates paladins from clerics yet more. Clerics only ever get one attack per action. So they attack with a weapon. That's it for a cleric. A paladin, this is where they lean more towards a fighter. They get the extra attack ability at level five. So every time they use the attack action from level five on, they get to make two weapon attacks, meaning that is two chances to get that critical hit to use that divine smite. So they are a class where a lot of the abilities interact with each other more and more as they level up. Sixth level is, again, a super, super underutilized ability. Actually, looking at this, I don't even know if... Caden knows that Gorif has this. We should check that later. Anyway, Aura of Protection. Whenever you or a friendly creature within 10 feet must make a saving throw, the creature gains a bonus to the saving throw equal to your charisma modifier with a minimum of plus one. You must be conscious to grant this bonus. At 18th level, the aura becomes 30 feet instead of 10 feet. So I mentioned earlier that Paladin's saving throw proficiencies aren't great but that they have an ability that makes up for it this is that so considering that charisma is their spellcasting modifier in theory a paladin should have at least a plus two or so in their charisma so the fact that every single saving throw gets that plus two is great so considering that applies to every single stat and again a little known fact so it wouldn't apply to you because it only works if you're conscious, but if an ally is unconscious and a paladin is just nearby to them, then that would even apply to a death saving throw because it is a type of saving throw. So if you have a paladin with, you know, especially one with a higher charisma, if you're rolling a death saving throw with a plus three, that is massively improved odds to an unconscious character. Alright, so at level 10, they get another aura, this one, Aura of Courage, which just stops you and friendly creatures within 10 feet from being frightened. So, useful, but not particularly fun. So, at 11th level, though, you get Improved Divine Smite. So, we mentioned before that Divine Smite, you get to spend a spell slot to boost your damage. However, this is even better, arguably. Well, it's not better, it's just very good in a different way. What's nice about this one is that every single one of your melee weapon strikes adds a d8 of radiant damage. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but again, to use the cleric comparison, they typically have a feature where once per turn, they can add a d8 of damage of some type or other, depending on the cleric. But the fact that this is to every attack very much helps to balance out the fact that it is, you know, quote unquote, only an extra D8. 
So consider the fact that this is to all weapon attacks, not weapon attacks on your turn, just when you hit with a melee weapon. So this would apply to two attacks every turn. So there's your potential 2d8. This would apply to any opportunity attacks to you, that you make. Every single attack getting that extra d8 can very much add up over the life of the paladin. At 14, another underappreciated one, but probably just because of the fact that games rarely get up to 14th level, Cleansing Touch can use an action to end one spell on yourself or one willing creature that you touch. You can use this up to a number of times equal to your charisma modifier and then a long rest to recharge. So the fact that you can just end a spell means that you could potentially end a charmed effect if you can realize it on yourself or an ally. The fact that you can just end, say, if there's a spell that applies the poison condition to somebody, if there's there are so many spells that just the ability to just end it. So again, just a number of times equal to your charisma modifier. So somewhere between two to five times that you can just do that as an action. No spell slots again, only limited by your charisma modifier. Useful. And yeah, so the last thing for all paladins is we mentioned it earlier, just that at 18th level, all of those auras that you get become 30 feet instead of 10 feet. So that's the full paladin, or the uh, general paladin abilities, rather. Then we go into all of the sacred oath options, and there are a number of them. And again, the oaths are very much what shape the paladin in terms of what they are supposed to believe in. How much you choose to enforce that is very much up to you. There are some DMs that specifically say the oaths don't matter, they're devotees of a god, and that's what matters. And that as long as they follow the tenets of the god, then I don't care what oath they pick, that's just powers. Or the opposite, it's the oath that matters, the gods doesn't, and that paladins are powered by faith. So whatever interpretation you choose to use, all applicable. Again, rule zero of Dungeons and Dragons. Whatever the DM says is okay is what is okay. So because of the fact that these oath abilities do have so much impact, again, I said before that they're really wordy. So I'm going to just kind of skip through these. I'm going to try to at least more than usual because, wow, there's like I don't know, 20 pages of subclasses, and that's just a lot. So first things first, the list. The oaths are the oath of conquest, oath of devotion, oath of redemption, oath of the ancients, oath of the crown, oath of vengeance, and the oath breaker. So of those oaths, there are a number of them that are, you know, the good and just type of character, and there are a number of them that really aren't super nice. So again, the oaths themselves do show not all paladins are going to be lawful good. Sorry, I had to mute for a hiccup. So one other thing that is very important to paladins in general, but I would say is worth a look for everyone, DMs and players alike, is that every single paladin oath also has a sidebar on their page that is the tenets of the oath. So exactly what the oath is supposed to be. 
And the reason I mentioned that this is a really useful thing, it is a fantastic set of lists that people can look through to get an idea of just, oh, that's a good character trait. I really like that. Because they use tenets that are not the typical, you know, uh, flaw bond stuff from a lot of the other lists. The paladin ones are unique to the oaths themselves. So it gives you a whole other set of options. So I'm not going to read through all of them, but I'm just going to go through the first ones in the Oath of Conquest just to show what I'm talking about. Douse the flame of hope. It is not enough to merely defeat an enemy in battle. Your victory must be so overwhelming that your enemy's will to fight is shattered forever. A blade can end a life. Fear can end an empire. That is not lawful good. It is literally the first tenet of the Oath of Conquest is to rule by fear. And that's pretty fucked. But at the same time, that's a really cool thing to think about of just the idea of, okay, so there are paladins whose belief is the status is not quo. I should rule everything. And so the having an evil warlord paladin, that's a cool idea. I would love to see something like that, to have there be a paladin villain who honestly believes that he is in the right. And, you know, if you really want to do a twist on the twist, maybe he is. Maybe he is like almost a Doctor Doom-like figure in that he is an asshole to everyone else, but an actual good ruler to his own people. So there are so many things with these tenets throughout the oaths that give you just a single line that can spark inspiration for a character. Anyway, that was a bit of a tangent, but a fun one for me. So worth it. So moving along, uh, like most spellcasters, they get additional spells based on the subclass. And a lot of it is just that kind of control oriented, like hold person, dominate beast, dominate person. It, it follows a theme. So I mentioned that paladins have channeled divinity. What is somewhat odd about theirs, unlike the clerics, is that there is no channel divinity that all paladins have. Every single oath grants its paladin two different options to choose from, and they can just choose one or the other to use each short rest. So again, I'm not going to read through all of the abilities, but I'm just going to cover like, oh, that's neat. So one option that the Oath of Conquest has, Guided Strike, you can choose after you make your attack roll to gain a plus 10 to the roll. So if you roll okay, but not well enough, you can make a miss a hit once per short rest. And as I do often say, that's a really useful ability. And uh, moving on, they also get another aura, Aura of Conquest, that can make fear more effective. So, okay, fine. That's I'm not a big fan of fear in general, so I'm just going to kind of gloss over that one. <laughs> All right. I have to read this in its entirely entirety just because there are times where I truly love the language used in some of the books in that I really just feel that whoever wrote it seemed like they were having fun with it. And this is one of those. 
So the Oath of Conquest, 15th level ability, Scornful Rebuke. Those who dare to strike you are physically, oh, sorry, are psychically punished for their audacity. Whenever a creature hits you with an attack, that creature takes psychic damage equal to your charisma modifier if you're not incapacitated. So, psychically punished for their audacity. I like that sentence. But that's a really cool ability, too. So, no action, no reaction that you have to do. Just automatically, when someone strikes you, they take psychic damage. That's awesome! So, one other thing that differentiates paladins is the fact that most classes at level 20 have what is called the capstone ability. So, the thing that you get for doing no multiclassing, for only doing the single class that you are. Paladins are possibly unique even. I don't recall any other class that has this, which is every single oath has their own capstone ability. So each oath is different at level 20. All of them are really powerful, but again, if I read every single ability, this is going to be a two-hour episode. So I'll simply sum up by saying that a lot of them are really powerful, and reading through the Paladin book is very useful because there are a number of very interesting abilities through them. So next up, we've got the Oath of Devotion. So this is very much the more good-aligned type of Paladin. And even in the lore section of the book where they're described, it says, sometimes called cavaliers, white knights, or holy warriors, these paladins meet the ideal of the knight in shining armor, acting with honor in pursuit of justice and the greater good. And that being said, there are some very interesting implications just to that sentence. There is a debate, let's be polite and call it, on the phrase the greater good. That phrase has been used historically for terrible things because the idea of lesser evils to promote a greater good is very, very much something that history has shown us. So even though this is the oath that is geared to a quote good character, the fact that they use that phrase, the greater good, does hold some interesting implications of other interpretations that you can choose to use. Excuse me. On the other hand, um, again, I'm just going to take the first tenet from the oath, because this is another one that is, I think is pretty interesting. Don't lie or cheat. Let your word be your promise. So that is one of the tenets of the oath. And yet, people lie all the time. So the idea of having a character who does truly follow that tenet of their oath, having a character who does not lie ever has a lot of fun opportunities to that. So that means they don't, never tell little white lies. They never, ne they won't, you know, cover up things. They won't just to be honest to a fault. That could be a potentially interesting character, but it would have to be in the right environment because you don't want to have such a character in a party where that just makes them the odd man out. Because even though you can have very interesting character ideas, sorry, this is just a tangent in general, but worth mentioning. Even though you have 
interesting character ideas. It is also very important to have a character that fits in with the party you're joining. If you have a super good party of heroes and you want to make the slime ball, that's a thing that can be very interestingly done. But if you are like the type of rogue who tries to rob your party in their sleep, like the, the party should just send you to jail for that because they're good and you're very obviously not. So be cautious when making characters to just try to make one that fits into the party that you're joining. Anyway, sorry, moving on. So again, channel divinity options for everyone. This is one for that oath of devotion that is incredibly powerful. So again, once per short rest, sacred weapon as an action, you can imbue a weapon with positive energy. So that actually fits back with uh, Tuesday's necromancy episode. So I mentioned that radiant is the opposite of necromancy. And here we actually see they do actually use it, use positive energy to describe radiant. I actually didn't remember that they describe it as such. So that makes me happy that I was right. I like being right. Anyway, uh, the ability, sacred weapon. For one minute, you add your charisma modifier to the attack rolls made with that weapon with a minimum bonus of plus one. Uh, if the weapon is not already magical, it becomes magical for the duration. That is yet another really good ability. So if you have a good charisma modifier, so let's say you've got a 16 charisma giving you a plus three, that would mean for one minute, two attacks per turn will have a plus three. And if it's not a magic weapon, then your damage counts as magical. And considering so many creatures have that damn resistance to non-magical bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage, that is enormously valuable for a third level ability. But what is also important and not spelled out, but implied, a lot of the time, bonuses like that say this doesn't add if the weapon is already magical. This doesn't say that which does mean by rules as written, if you have like a plus two magic longsword, this would add an additional plus three to your attacks. It will successfully stack. So the fact that a paladin can get two attacks per turn with a plus three to the attack is enormous. Anyway, uh, moving on from that... Uh, they get their spells, they get an aura that prevents you from being charmed, so no mind control is always super useful. Uh, ba -ba -ba, you are always under the protection from good and evil spell, so unable to be possessed, or a whole bunch of other stuff from evil creatures. Useful. Alright, and their 20th level is another pretty good one, but I'm just going to skip it because there's still like five left. Uh, subclasses, that is. Oath of Redemption. This is actually another uh, another interesting one. I've got to improve my vocabulary. I need a word-a-day calendar. Anyway, so the Oath of Redemption is the pacifist, for all intents and purposes. Their whole shtick is that violence is a last resort, and that every other option is supposed to be attempted first before resorting to violence. And in a D&D &D game where violence is so very often choice number one, two, three, and 12, 
the idea of trying to play a pacifist character is a very different style of character than is typically done. I would say it's potentially hard to play just because if you are the only pacifist in a group of murder hobos, that would be rather difficult to pull off. But if you're willing to give it a shot and if the party is willing to you know, allow you to give it a shot, that could be a really interesting thing too, to just have so unlike most adventurers a character. So to use violence last, even though you're potentially quite good at it. But one thing I'll also just mention quickly, just because they prefer not to use violence doesn't mean they won't, doesn't mean they can't. It just means that that is their belief that you shouldn't do that as the first choice. So just because they prefer not to does not mean that this type of pacifist won't if they feel it to be necessary. And a lot of their abilities are also just rather interesting in that they're geared more towards that kind of peaceful resolution. So their channel divinity is just you give yourself a plus five to persuasion for 10 minutes. So emissary of peace plus five to your charisma. So because persuasion is a charisma ability. So if you have that as one of your trained skills, and again, let's use that 16 charisma paladin example. So they'd have a plus three and let's just say they're just third level. So they would have a plus three plus two proficiency plus five. So it'd be a plus 10 persuasion at level three. That is massive. So even though they are able to do violence as all adventurers are, that's a pretty decent odd at diffusing a situation. If you're rolling persuasion checks at a plus 10, and also it certainly never hurts if the person playing the character is good with their words to just have a kind of, you know, good mini speech about why to not kill us all. That could be a really cool thing to see played. And their aura, when they get to level 7, is Aura of the Guardian. They have the option, when a creature within 10 feet takes damage, they can use their reaction to take that damage themselves instead. So it doesn't transfer any effects of the damage, but the sheer idea that you can redistribute damage from other people to yourself to take that hit for your allies is amazing. So if you want to be, let's say you are more healing focused in your spell choice. So the ability to prevent the fighter from dropping unconscious, the ability to prevent, say, if there is a cleric or bard who also can heal in the party to prevent the healer from going down. That is an amazing ability. The only downside being that it, since it does take your reaction, that would prevent you from using it more than once around. But still, that is a really interesting power. And then as they keep leveling up, it all just kind of fits along that theme. A little bit more healing, some damage resistances. It is just a class built for that potential pacifism. So Oath of the Ancients, I don't know that I've ever actually seen one played, but it's another kind of different spin on things. So again, in the lore... 
sometimes called fey knights, green knights, or horned knights. Paladins who swear this oath cast their lot with the side of the light in the cosmic struggle against darkness because they love the beautiful and life-giving things of the world. So it's pretty much just a paladin with a kind of druid angle to them. So the fact that they are that more nature-focused is a very, again, different take. So I, I keep saying this, but it, it, I keep finding more and more examples of it. Paladins are not as cookie-cutter as most make them out to be. So there are so many options throughout all of this to make really different styles of characters, and I truly do hope to see more of that going forwards. Actually... Uh, this is already very much getting on the long side, and we still have four subclasses to go. So unfortunately, I am just going to kind of skip through the next few a bit faster because time. So the Oath of the Ancients is very much that more nature-tinted uh, paladin, so they do get a lot of abilities angled around that. So two spells that I'll actually choose to mention, though, is that they at fifth level... They get the spell Moonbeam, which is a very underestimated one that forces shape changers potentially back to their normal form. So real good against werewolves, doppelgangers, all kinds of stuff like that. And then at ninth level, Plant Growth. The fact that that is a spell to enrich the land around you is one of those world-changing spells. The ability to magically guarantee that land will yield a good harvest is, again, world-changing. And I lost my place. Oath of the Ancients. Okay, all good. Moving on. But in addition to that, they also have one of the more powerful auras, which makes themselves and anyone within 10 feet resistant to all damage from spells. So half damage from fireball, disintegrate, all of the horrifying magic out there. Half damage. Just flat out, no action, automatic, half damage. That's real good. <laughs> Alright, and then again, they just get abilities that give them more options in combat, that give them that kind of uh, nature-y bent. One just kind of neat thing I'm going to mention, this one I will briefly mention, the level 20, just because it's kind of cool. Elder Champion, assume the form of an ancient force of nature, taking on an appearance you choose, such as turning your skin green or bark-like texture, or hair might become leafy or moss-like, or you might sprout antlers or a lion-like mane. So I am not going to mention the abilities, I just think that's a fucking awesome description and worth mentioning. Alright. Next up is the Oath of the Crown, who swears to the ideals of civilization. So this might be you are, you know, a paladin of the king, or you are paladin of, you know, the place that you come from. So it is the guardian type of the world. So a lot of their abilities, again, are more of a defensive bend. And a lot, well, pretty, yeah, just looking through it, that really just is their theme. All of their abilities are just focused on defense, protection, shielding, and they're really good at that. But I just am going to skip ahead because we're already almost an hour through and there's still two left. All right. The Oath of Vengeance is one that we kind of have to spend a little bit of time on because Oath of Vengeance is 
what Gorf has from the Riftwake podcast. So it would just be doing him and ourselves a disservice to not mention that fact. But their whole shtick, instead of being to a person or a place, is to punish those who have committed sin. So exactly what they define to be sin gives this oath, I would argue, one of the most flexibility of all of them. So you can have an Oath of Vengeance Paladin who is, you know, dark and gritty, you know, punish the villains of the world who escape the law, kind of like the Punisher in Marvel Comics. You can have it be just a kind of crazy person who just does not well define, well, what is sin and just, you know, punishes good people for stupid minor reasons. So you can have anywhere on the alignment spectrum with the same oath. And again, having that option of flexibility is a thing that I appreciate. And they are also one of the stronger channel divinity options that they get when they pick the Oath of Vengeance, which is Vow of Enmity. As a bonus action, you can pick a creature that you see within 10 feet and gain advantage on all attack rolls against the creature for a minute or until it drops to zero hit points or falls unconscious. That is incredible. Most channel divinities are an action, so therefore they cannot make their attack or attacks if they're fifth level or higher. So the fact that Vow of Enmity is a bonus action means that they can get advantage on every attack for a full minute, meaning 10 turns of combat. And even besides that fact, it says on advantage on attack rolls, not melee attack rolls, not range attack rolls, just attack rolls. So that can be used for melee, that can be used for a bow and arrow, that can be used for spell attacks even. So if you have a spell that needs an attack roll, you would get advantage on that too. And again, that is massively flexible and massively powerful. Win-win. All right, and they get a number of spells. So they actually have a lot of mobility spells, which is interesting. They have Misty Step to teleport as a bonus action, Haste to just move much more quickly. So the fact that they have so many options to chase down, you know, quote-unquote evildoers is a pretty interesting aspect of them. And even besides that, they, another just fun uh, ability name, Relentless Avenger. So at level 7, when they hit with an opportunity attack, they can use half of their speed to kind of chase after without opportunity attacks. So the ability to negate the action economy of your enemy's opportunity attacks, always good. But even so, so all their abilities just moving moving along forward. It's going to be a long time so we get to 15th level, so I don't need to clue Kate into all this stuff quite yet. But all of their abilities do give them more mobility, more attack options, more damage options. So the sheer theme around the Oath of Vengeance is the chasing down of what they define as evildoers. And finally, finally, the Oathbreaker, the last one. So an Oathbreaker is mentioned in the Dungeon Master's Guide as one of the quote-unquote evil options, along with the Death Domain Cleric. 
So whether you actually define it that way is debatable. Because technically, if you have like an evil Oath of Conquest paladin, they can decide, oh, that was a bad idea, and then be an Oathbreaker for the purpose of redemption. So even though an Oathbreaker is defined as evil, and a lot of their abilities aren't super nice, and even though the lore actually says a paladin must be evil and at least their level to become an Oathbreaker, this is one of those times where I do encourage bending of the rules. Anyway, what is also interesting, so the Oathbreaker is an oath that you can choose to make to be an evil paladin, if that is your choice when you make the character. But the reason it's called Oathbreaker is because, technically speaking, if any of the other types of paladins, like, knowingly and consistently break their oath without remorse or redemption, the DM has the option to decide you have broken your oath and either become an Oathbreaker or flat out lose all of your paladin powers and must pick a different class, like fighter or something like that. I hate that option. That is spelled out that if paladin breaks oath, these are the options the DM can choose. I hate that. I hate taking away player choice. It'd be one thing to have a discussion with the player and say, like, you're not really following the oath that you picked. Would you like or be okay with but for the dm to just decide and just flat out change what the player's character is i don't like that at all anyway uh the spells that an oathbreaker gets are much well let's say darker in nature they get hellish rebuke to do fire damage as a reaction they get animate dead to race a zombie or skeleton under their control their spell choices are not super nice. So I definitely do see why it is really kind of aimed as the evil option. Anyway, channel divinities, control undead, what it says on the tin. Useful. Aura of hate at seventh level. So normally, the paladin aura is themselves and friends within 10 feet. This one is the paladin, as well as any fiends and undead within 10 feet, gain a bonus to melee weapon damage equal to the charisma mod. So that means every single attack that that paladin and any undead under control may make will get a bonus of their charisma. So considering that, again, a paladin should have a good charisma, this could mean that every single attack twice a turn once they're at that level would get potentially plus three damage added on so twice a turn extra three damage so six more damage every single turn adds up and then as they level up they gain damage resistance they gain as their level 20 ability honestly the ability itself is neat but i just love the name dread lord so <laughs> in conclusion, paladins are typically depicted as lawful good, and even lawful stupid is a very common description of paladins, but not a description that I feel give them justice, because paladins are so very much more versatile than most people will give them credit. 
and have so many potential options for fun characters in the world. Thanks for listening to this episode of Riffs and Rules. Please leave us a review and give us five stars on iTunes. Also, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Cheers stars loads a dollar, and even that much really helps us out. Supporters get benefits such as behind-the-scenes content, early access to episodes, access to the Patreon Discord where we'll be able to chat with the cast, and even a shout-out on the show. Find us on social media, on Twitter at Podcast on Facebook as Riffwake, and on Reddit, on the subreddit, r slash Podcast. And now, send us an email, riffsandrules at gmail.com. That's riffsandyrules at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye! Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.